Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. An ongoing conversation with ministry leaders about embracing complexity and uncertainty with joy and faithfulness. Hi, friends. This is Adam with the Ministry Collaborative, and I'm pleased today to have a new guest to our podcast, Matthew Bates. He is a professor of theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. I've been a reader of his material for a few years now, and I've been thinking of a good time to have a conversation about some of it, especially this new book he has coming out. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. Matt, share with us just a short snippet of where you are and how you got there in ministry and through the academy and whatever else might be helpful to our audience. So I'm an academic, and I'm teaching theology at Quincy University. My training is in biblical studies, um, more specifically, and the path to that for me was a winding one because I started out doing my undergraduate in physics, and then I got a job as an electrical engineer. So it took me a while to circle around to biblical studies, but really what happened is I grew up in a nominal Christian home, but really during college had a more serious experience with Jesus. And that was actually through a course um, that I took, a New Testament course with Dr. Roger Morling at Whitworth University. And that flipped me upside down a bit because I realized I had no idea how to read the Bible, even though I'd read it quite a bit and also had no idea how to think cohesively about like a biblical worldview. And it really helped me clean up some issues in my life that were going on too, and really got involved in practical ministry, serving the poor through a sack lunch ministry at that time as well. So uh, I really see that moment in my life as a definitive turning point. And after that, I began to lose interest a bit in physics, even though I finished the degree, just because I felt a call to go into ministry in some sense. I didn't know if that would just be a local ministry and I would end up having some other normal job or whether I'd be a pastor. But I went to Regent College then and did a master's degree. And then I really got the bug and decided to go on and do that PhD uh, and uh, did that at Notre Dame and have been here at Quincy University ever since. I first came across some of the more recent work you've been doing with a book you wrote a few years ago called Gospel Allegiance. And even the title alone, I found really intriguing, not least because of the type of culture we're inhabiting and the type of social and political ideological division. And it just seemed like allegiance had become this big thing about, you know, who do we devote ourselves to and what does that look like in a really broad and encompassing way. So I I really appreciated your work on that. And I'm seeing now how that sort of thinking has also kind of led to some of the other work you've been doing. And we'll talk about more in a minute with Why the Gospel, this newest book. But I'd love for you to speak for a minute just to that work around gospel allegiance and what that work meant for you and how it intersects with the world we currently inhabit. Yeah, Gospel Allegiance is an attempt to articulate a kind of core model for how to think about salvation. So, you know, obviously there are a lot of denominational options out there for how salvation has been packaged, but it's an attempt to go back to the Bible, be historical in the sense of being informed by the early church fathers too, and to try to articulate a core model. What is the gospel? What is faith? What is grace? What are works? I found that there had been, as part of my biblical studies training, maybe a bit of slippage with regard to how the gospel was dealt with, and in particular, a focus on the gospel that was more about me, right? About like, what can I get out of it? And about a transaction that I pray a prayer and then I'm saved, or those kinds of ideas as the gospel maybe got packaged as a Roman's road, right? God is righteous, humans are sinners, Jesus is the Savior, and 
then we declare by believing or faith and repenting that we're then part of God's family, something along those lines. And I realized that that's not really what the Bible says about the gospel. And so as I was forced to dig into that, I also realized that the sort of the relentless focus on the cross and resurrection as part of the gospel was on the one hand true, but on the other hand, short-sighted in the sense of missing the frame. And the larger frame, I think, when we pay attention to the New Testament is the frame of the kingdom of God, and especially how that's climaxed through Jesus becoming the king. Mm. So um, Gospel Allegiance really was seeking to help people think about salvation holistically with a focus on Jesus's kingship, and then especially like marrying to that idea, the idea of faith as allegiance or loyalty, which I think is also a neglected emphasis in terms of biblical scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, hearing that really helpful summary of that work leads me right into this new book that you have coming out, Why the Gospel? So it seems to me that in some ways you're getting at the same sort of concern, but from different angles and at different levels of depth. And, you know, it's like you're taking a lens and you're zooming in at times and you're zooming out at times. So what are you doing with Why the Gospel? How is that different than the Gospel Allegiance framework that you've been working on? And you know, I'll, you know, why the gospel? I'll ask you why the book? Yeah. So you're right. It does presuppose um, some of my previous work, both in Salvation by Allegiance Alone and Gospel Allegiance. And so there's not a different framework in place. But I think that what I had left undone in those previous projects was maybe the question, like, why did God give the gospel in the first place? That's one kind of question, right? That on the one hand, I spent a lot of energy and a lot of other people have talking about what is the gospel. But I think we need to kind of back up and look at God's motive in giving it. And when we do that, asking different questions causes different sorts of observations to emerge, right? And maybe that might help in the church to reframe this whole salvation conversation, right? Is to go back and say, from a biblical standpoint, like, why did God give the gospel? That's one thing I'm trying to do in the book. The other is the other implied question within why the gospel, and that is, why would anyone respond to it today, right? And I haven't really dealt with that in my previous writings either. So those are the two questions that attend why the gospel, and one hand, what's the logic of it? Why did God give it? And on the other hand, like, why would this still be compelling good news to anybody today? Yeah, that's really helpful. And you've got me thinking, too, that, you know, one of the common threads that runs throughout your work that, in my view, is really valuable and really helpful for for pastors, for lay people, just for the church in general, is that you're framing the gospel in such a way that choosing between the individual and the corporate or the individual and the social is a false choice. That if you go with allegiance and you go with the broader kind of theological and biblical question of why, you can't really choose between those. It has to be one and the same. To what degree is that an accurate inference from these projects? Yeah, I think that's accurate. What I would want to emphasize is that the New Testament, when it speaks about salvation, is speaking primarily about the salvation of a people. Mm-hmm. It's about God rescuing the people of God. Of course, though, that that has to devolve down to the individual level, ultimately. Right, but we need to think through what Scripture teaches, beginning mainly from a group framework mm-hmm. that God desires to save a people for himself. And I think that helps undercut the narcissism of our culture, right, <laughs> yeah. where it's all about what can I get yeah. out of it, right? When we think like, no, it's actually God is wanting to create a people for himself, and that people is a people that will then display his glory, right? And that as those people like 
display God's glory to the nations, to one another, to creation, right? Well, then as part of that, God gets more honor too as that process unfolds. And so then I get a chance to participate in it and be restored. So it certainly does touch on the individual level. As far as your second concern about choosing between culture wars being fought about whether the gospel involves social action or it doesn't, like certainly I would be on the side that the gospel itself, because it's a response to a king, right? involves a citizen body and inescapably does so. And that to declare Jesus as king is a socio-political action and it can't be cordoned off from that in some way. Yeah, you've anticipated a question I wanted to push a little bit further in talking about how all of this intersects with some of our cultural proclivities and tendencies. You know, I think about pastors, I think about lay leaders, I think about people in the pews. What about our context of ministry and of Christian faith in general drives a lot of this for you? Or maybe it's to that second question of why would anybody be drawn to this good news? Or why would anybody want to believe the gospel? Or why would anybody want a new king? I think in some ways that's what you're this book is getting at. So I'd love for you to flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the heartbeat of the project is a concern that people respond to the gospel, mm-hmm. right? Um, and however we can get people to authentically respond to Jesus's kingship is a win. And so that's the main intention of the book um, would be to promote evangelism. And as part of that, realizing that that's mainly focused on disciple making and seeing the King Jesus gospel as a tool for that. So yeah, there's some chapters in the book that deals with the issue of the nuns and duns, right? People who have, for one reason or another, either never been interested in the church or they were interested and then they walked away and trying to see how is it that an authentic representation of the gospel might captivate that audience. There's sociological research that's been done by the Barna Group and others. I'm talking about David Kinnaman's work. But there are there are documented reasons why people say they don't want to be Christians. Number one would be hypocrisy. That's the number one reason people give. They sense that people are hypocritical or too political. That would be another reason they give. Or that Christians are only interested in counting converts, right? That we only want to add numbers to the role, right? And that our motivation then in evangelism is just to gain a new convert. I think that maybe that a lot of those concerns have to do with a transactional gospel that people have heard that is purposed toward getting people to mouth some words or pray a prayer and say that they somehow trust that Jesus has died for their sins, but hasn't really actually called them to allegiance to a king. Just to illustrate with the issue of hypocrisy, for instance, if your gospel is what I really need to do is I need to trust that Jesus died for my sins and that that's effective for me personally. I need to trust, to put it in theological terms, that the atonement works and that it actually has worked to cover my sins. Right? If that's your version of the gospel, then it's pretty easy to separate mind and body. Right? Because all you need to do is you need to have a little space in your mind where you're like, well, in that little niche in my mind, I've managed to carve out this space where I'm handing myself over to Jesus and I'm trusting him. If, on the other hand, like to respond to the gospel is actually to give Jesus your allegiance and that faith itself is embodied, that it's inscribed in your body, right? That it's something that you declare with your body, Mm. right? And that what it means then to declare Jesus as Lord is that you're placing your whole self, mind, body, spirit, all that you are, 
at his disposal, right, that's quite a different thing, right? And it undercuts hypocrisy because it involves all of you. I wonder the degree to which the nuns um, who are not attracted to Christianity, whether they've really heard the gospel, because I think across the board, mainline churches, evangelical churches, we have been invested in a skewed gospel that hasn't really gotten to the heart of the matter, which is confession of Jesus's kingship and loyalty to him. Yeah, that's really interesting because the data as I read it, and it's increasing. You know, we live in a context where you have rapid decrease in trust in our institutional expressions of Christian faith, but at the same time, a growth in curiosity in matters of faith and spirituality, but also a growth in practices around this. So people are actually increasingly drawn to even, as you say, embodied practice. You see this across the culture, that they're trying to connect with spiritual things with their bodies. And I think that's a really good impulse. And what I like about what you're doing here, and I think you're doing it rather uniquely, I don't think there's enough out there is to say that this idea of us being, as the New Testament says over and over again, this idea of us being justified by faith or the good news of the gospel for us is holistic. It really does have everything to do with, you know, like Paul says, presenting our bodies. And it won't allow you to settle, as I think a lot of us have in some of our traditional theological frameworks. It won't allow us to settle for faith by thinking hard. It seems like most of us have realized that's sort of a dead end that didn't have much traction in the first place. So I really appreciate the holistic part of that. One of the things I want to ask you along the same lines is, I find it really interesting that you've been able to take some, in some ways, some pretty rigorous academic thinking, but you've not written it in that way. You know, the books you've been writing really, I think, are quite accessible. And one of the ways you've done that is it looks like every chapter in this upcoming book has a pretty good series of discussion questions. So it has me wondering, when you imagine people picking this up and reading it as individuals or as groups, who is that audience? I could make assumptions about who that might be, but who do you have in mind wrestling through this book together? Well, I appreciate your kind words there, Adam, because it is hard work to try to not dumb down the academic stuff, but at the same time to like intersperse that with good storytelling, good illustrations, to keep the ball moving along in terms of the narrative flow of a book. Um, yeah, I have tried to write deliberately, though, for a number of different audiences. This new book, The Why the Gospel, is really aimed at the at the general Christian reader. Realistically, though, um, the way in which most of your general Christian readers encounter this material is usually through the recommendation of a pastor or a leader, right? It's usually an elder or a, like some sort of church leader or friend who's involved in ministry and who follows these discussions, who really makes those recommendations. So I do hope that this moves all the way down to uh, the ground level, right? That is um, your everyday Christian who's reading um, this book and using it as a tool for evangelism. Matt, as you look at the landscape, of the church, particularly the church in the West and the U.S., what are you hopeful about for pastors and congregations? What do you see the Spirit doing that you think, yes, we can attend to that, and that embodies the good news? That's a great question and a difficult question because we're in a bleak time, I think, in some ways. Our culture is so divided. And when I think about hope, I mainly think about the difficult challenge for churches each week to press beyond the formulaic things that they do and to actually proclaim Jesus is King. That's when I think the church is constituted. That's when we move from being just a Jesus admiration society with an auxiliary band to being the church. 
I have hope that that's beginning to happen. I think that there is more and more concern with Jesus's kingship and lordship in an increasingly an attempt to proclaim that. I think what it gives me hope is when we move from doing that just in a general sense of worship to beginning to do that as part of like a collective reflective exercise within the church, right? Whenever we, on our Sunday mornings as we gather or other times when we gather, whether it's two or three or whether it's a whole thousands of people, whenever we're stopping in the midst of what we're doing and we're saying, what is King Jesus actually saying to us right now? He is our king. How is he ruling in our midst? What does he want to do in our midst right now, in our communities, in our church, in our families, in our personal lives? So I feel hopeful that there's a movement of people that want to attend to that question, that want to ask, what is King Jesus up to and what is he up to right here in my space? Yeah, and it's such a jarring and counterintuitive kingship because it comes with so much good news and joy. Matt, thank you so much for the conversation, and um, I hope that folks are able to uh, pick up your book and engage with it and continue the conversation even further. Thanks, Adam, and thanks to the Ministry Collaborative. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.